It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Harman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Harman Institute North America. We're recording uh, in the evening, actually, July 22nd, 2020. And our topic for this week is kind of a fun one. Uh, at the Hartman Institute, over the past three and a half weeks, we have been running actually a kind of a massive digital experiment in Jewish learning prompted by the pandemic, not something that we would have designed as part of our strategic plan prior to March of 2020, but in direct response to the fact that a key piece of the business of the Hartman Institute is bringing together people to learn. And we've done that in uh, Israel for over 20 years now, over 30 years now, for programs for rabbis and lay leaders. And uh, when our programs got canceled uh, and when travel proved impossible, I think we canceled probably around April, it became obvious to us that even as we couldn't run the programs as they had been designed, there was a need in the world for wisdom. There was a need in the world for Torah. We were hearing from our constituencies uh, of a real need to stay in relationship. Um, and needless to say, and I want to unpack this to, today with, uh, with some of my colleagues, uh, a real hunger for both wisdom and for the stuff that would help to alleviate the real uh, loneliness that was actually uh, deep and pervasive uh, for many of us who are at home. So for the past three and a half weeks, uh, ending tomorrow, we have run a four-week experiment, which we called All Together Now, a kind of digital conference of Jewish learning. I don't have to run through all the numbers. We had over 7,000 people registered. I think the total we're working with is around 20,000 hours plus of teaching and learning, 70 faculty members, plus dozens of other guest speakers, panelists, discussants, uh, thousands of people participating daily, um, choosing their own adventure throughout the learning that we were offering. And we wanted to take a little bit of time today, I'm here with a bunch of my colleagues, to talk about this program and this experience, not as much uh, to evaluate or simply describe something that took place, but because we think there's actually a whole bunch here that might be useful and instructive for the field of Jewish education and for Jewish organizational life and for the world of Torah that goes beyond this summer and beyond the, the limitations of our own organization and our learnings. So I'm joined by a delightful group of my colleagues. Uh, um, and the truth is, I want to just say our team is about close to 40 people. I think we could have picked four names out of a hat from our team from this summer, given the amount of work that uh, was actually happening in our team, and there would have been great insights from across our organization. But I'm especially thrilled to have Rachel Jacoby Rosenfield, who's the Executive Vice President of the Shalom Harman Institute of North America, Rabbi Justice Baird, the Senior Vice President for National Programs, Rabbi Lauren Birkin, our VP of Synagogue and Rabbinic and Synagogue Programs, and Rabbi Justin Pines, Director of Hartman, New York. It was only by accident that we wound up with a reform-trained, orthodox-trained, and conservative-trained rabbi. And I guess that's like a consequence of uh, being a pluralistic organization is that you pick three rabbis and they happen to be kind of the beginning of a joke. And I'm excited to, to be together with my colleagues to, to talk about all the components of this experience. So let me start with, um, with Rachel and, and Justice. And in particular, Rachel, I wanted to start, uh, if you could help our listeners 
to position this in the world of a Jew, of, of any Jewish organization, um, mindset, uh, temperament, the mood of the Jewish organization around these pivots in March and April, when, when the organization gets grounded, you know, all of our travel gets halted, the deep disappointment around the cancellation. I would love for you to, what, what was your experience of what that felt like inside this organization prior to a kind of pivot into this move? And what did you see as your responsibility in terms of holding together an organization um, and this whole team dispositionally and temperamentally to be able to then move into a kind of creative moment? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's, it's funny thinking back to that now. I think we had no idea how long this would continue. No, it's really hard to remember exactly what the what the feeling was. But I think in that immediate moment, there was a sense that um, it was really important to move together, that there was this, this sense that we'd all been dispersed to our, our homes um, and that life as we knew it had been completely disrupted and that there was there was something innately valuable in thinking to ourselves and together, what's our core mission? What is it, we, what is it that we're put on this earth to do as the Hartman Institute? And how can we all do that together? That was the impulse. And it felt like the impulse, both from an external point of view, meaning like, this is what we have to offer the world at this time. Like we don't have, we can't make PPE. We can't do all of the other things that would have been useful at that moment. But what we can do is offer Jewish ideas. And so how do we do that? But how do we do it together? Because everything had just been disrupted and broken. All of the boundaries we're used to between, you know, regional and national and Israel and and home and work and all of those boundaries were broken. So in that fluidity, how could we create some kind of unified vision and sense of purpose that would align with our mission and really be transformative? What did you think were the, I want to go to justice in a second, but what did you think was the hardest piece psychologically in terms of adjusting um, an, an organization? And, and it's our organization, but my goal is to try to unpack a little bit, even in the presence of our colleagues, like what's, what are the obstacles about the ability to actually get people from a place of, of loss to what you're talking about, which is kind of essentialism of my mission and then the creativity to be able to move on? Yeah, so I think I mean I think that the hardest thing for me at that moment was that um, was storytelling. I'm I'm I lead through storytelling through telling the story of where we were and where we are and where we're going. And in a moment like that, I didn't know where we were going. And to be a leader and to say I'm not sure where we're going. I'm not even sure exactly what the vision for this program looks like fully. Actually, we're going to build it together in the moment. That that's daunting and it's scary and it feels vulnerable, and and I and I wasn't and I honestly wasn't sure how it how it would all go, but I was sure that the aspects of caring about people and caring about the mission those two things mattered and so I did know enough to call everyone you know at, on the phone before that Shabbat and I did know enough to know that we had to come together around our mission. And short of that, I had to admit that I didn't know more. And I think that was one of the hardest things, just the not knowing. Yeah. So Justice, you, you've basically presided over the kind of design process in the organization first for what had to happen in the spring when uh, we're in the kind of the middle of the academic year and suddenly we have all these program goals that we have to achieve, but we have to achieve it in a totally different way than before. But then this much bigger lift, which was around designing an activity that, as we explicitly talked about, was not trying to be 
what we had done before, but on the internet, but was going to be a kind of from scratch, what might be possible. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what that design process was like for you, um, what resistance or obstacles you felt you had to um, uh, come, uh, come up against along the way, and what what revealed itself about the work of education of Torah uh, um, that may be specific to the kind of Corona moment, but also might be something that we take we take from this experience beyond when it comes to kind of program design and creativity? So first I would say, you know, this was not, it actually wasn't an ex nihilo, you know, design from nothing kind of exercise. We, we have decades of history at Hartman doing something for the summer we just couldn't do it the way we normally did it. And so we knew we wanted to do something big and exciting for the summer. The challenge was what the heck would, would actually work given what's going on. And your directive, Yehuda, early on that, you know, similar to what you just said, I, do, I don't want to copy the in-person online. Let's take advantage of what we can do. So I think that was the first design element was, we have a history of doing something big over the summer, but let's really lean in to the advantages that we can in terms of what can happen in a virtual environment. For me, the design process, remind, within a day, it reminded me of my work in uh, tech education startups in the late 1990s, back when the internet first had its boom, which is to say, you could only see a day or two ahead. Everyone had job descriptions that didn't really matter. We just did work together and figured it out. The hours were crazy. People were, you know, both excited and getting short with each other. I had to use a lot of my rabbinic pastoral energy to just keep everyone, you know, working together along the way. There was a lot of what I would call whack-a-mole going on with problems as they come up. Every you know, twice a day, we would have a problem that seemed insurmountable, and we were coming together as a team uh, to figure it out. So can you give me an example of that justice? Like what's a what's a problem that in the moment feels insurmountable, and then in retrospect, in a design process seems eminently surmountable? Well, so I'll give you two examples. One is, you know, we needed a platform, a digital platform to pull this off. We, we didn't have an internally built one yet, although we've been talking for months about what something might look like, but we had to have something ready now. We had about a week or two to evaluate half a dozen different companies to see what we would want to choose. We, you know, listened to all of their sales calls and said, well, this one looks best. It cost $23,000. And I remember the first thing that, that our production uh, manager, Michael, came and said, okay, we're working on a contract, and I, I, I did a big one. It, it can handle up to 1,000 people. And I said, Michael, I think we might have 2,500 or 3,000 people who sign up. He's like, no, we're not going to have that many people. I said, I don't know. It could happen. And I remember thinking to myself in that moment, I don't think that's going to happen, but Yehuda's going to kill me if like this thing isn't big enough. So we better be ready. And so a second one, and I think Lauren should tell the story in a moment, right? We had to, we had to figure out how 70 faculty could teach hundreds of classes in four weeks and not overlap with each other for multiple programs. And I got to tell you, these faculty have a lot of special, the amazing faculty, but they have a lot of requests. This one can't teach at this hour, and this one, you know, wants to teach this audience. All of these kind of things. She, Lauren, can say more about it. But it was 
it felt completely insurmountable in the moment of how to schedule this thing. Yeah. Um, for just the record, I've never killed anybody. Just uh, I want to be clear about that. <laughs> um, and I don't think Hartman faculty are at the level of like demanding green M&Ms in their rider in the in the they green room. But I but there, I understand the, the dynamics of that. And I want to this piece that I want to come back to later when we try to unpack some of the consequences of this for the broader field of Jewish education. And one is the very difficulty of trying to design something right now um, and requiring a degree of technical knowledge about platforms and services and, and, and how every Jewish organization is figuring that out by itself. Um, you know, and who is, who's the invisible hand that actually says, you know what, what we really need is to provide the Jewish community more broadly with access to these kind of platforms, maybe discounted, but more just in terms of knowledge base, oh, you need to do this? Okay, here's where you should go, is kind of a fascinating learning about this moment. So Lauren, why don't you come in? Because um, Justice alluded to some moments along the way that, um, that you might help us, uh, that might help us uh, understand this moment. And then I want to talk to you in particular about rabbis, if we can. Absolutely. Well, for the record, I think from the outset, I was very optimistic that not only would we have 2,000 or 3,000 people, but maybe even 5,000. I don't think I ever imagined 7,000, but I think part of that optimism stemmed from my own experience teaching for Hartman Online in what I think was our first experiment with kind of public online teaching in response to coronavirus this spring when I taught a 10-week iEngage course. And through that experience of really meeting lay leaders from all over the country and the world and seeing how we could really build community and connect with people through this medium, I was very optimistic that with the breadth and the diversity of our faculty that we could reach so many people in very meaningful ways and intimate ways um, and it, through a variety of program offerings, whether it was large group webinars or small electives. So I think the dream for our design team early on was to really invite all of our faculty, many of whom do not have the opportunity to teach our summer students who come to Jerusalem, simply because when you have 200 program participants, um, maybe 20 of our faculty can offer them sessions in a week-long program or in a 10-day program. But now we wanted to see what would happen if we invited all of our incredibly talented faculty to teach, whether in English or in Hebrew, on areas of their expertise on Torah they were developing in response to this moment um, in research teams that were kind of refocusing their efforts in response to the coronavirus in areas of spirituality and in ethics and in peoplehood. And um, then I think the challenge became could our dream and our optimism for what we could accomplish match our ability to implement this program logistically? And I do think we spent a lot of time in a bit of a panic once we knew we had all of these faculty ready and prepared to teach incredible Torah, how we could put the pieces together in a way that we could deliver it in a very short time frame, And it, Feel, it felt a little miraculous in the end when it when it did come together, but I think that was that was part of the big challenge. One of the things that's been uh, powerful for me since I came to Hartman, Lauren, and I didn't fully grasp this before I came to this institution, was um, the work that we do with rabbis, which you lead in our organization, and in particular, what you can see is almost like the great exhale of the ten day rabbinic Torah seminar, because rabbis are for the first time in the year, a minimum 7,000 miles away from their congregants. They have no responsibilities for two weeks. They um, sometimes kind of become congregants 
<laughs> I say that with love to the rabbis, but like they get to like complain about the food, you know, it's like a different dynamic and, and we, and rabbis have not been able to access that. So I'm curious both, um, what you're seeing and what you're hearing from the field in terms of the pressures that are on rabbis right now. And, and also I, w- I would love for you to comment on, even in spite of all this, we've received enormous feedback from rabbis that the availability of the Torah itself, even without the plane flight, and even without being in the courtyard in Jerusalem, has actually been uplifting for them. So maybe you could help us unpack what's, um, what's at stake right now for rabbis in, in terms of their own spiritual needs and how we can continue to provide for them. Absolutely. Well, I think we've seen a, a wide diversity of responses from rabbis. I think there are many rabbis in this moment that simply do not have the headspace for Torah study. They are knee deep in institutional crisis management, in, um, in dealing with the trauma, the loss, the uncertainty, the fear in their local communities. And part of the program design for All Together Now was to put out so many different options for rabbis to come in and out throughout the month as they were able. And I think for some rabbis, that was helpful to be able to say, okay, I can come once a week for one Beit Midrash Yur. And that when they were still in their homes, they were surrounded by that stress of the crisis and the work, the day-to-day work. They weren't able to be in that retreat mode that rabbis are able to, to do when they come to Jerusalem. And then on the other hand, we had a whole host of rabbis that really approached all together now as their summer retreat. And, and they have been giving us so much feedback about the way in which um, this program for the first time made accessible the, the richness of the Hartman Institute, either because they were never able to afford to come to Jerusalem in the summer or they weren't able to get away or for physical disabilities that they weren't able to come to Jerusalem and that, that this program was accessible on so many levels in that they could do it from their home, they could do it for free free um, and they could craft their schedule as um, as worked best for them. And I think uh, the recordings and the access to the session recordings, particularly for rabbis, um, was part of that accessibility and feeling that, you know, we're kind of giving them a window and, a, and an opening into our, our institute and to our Beit Midrash uh, and to be able to do that live or to watch recordings I think was, uh, felt like a gift. And that's what we're hearing from them. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here around accessibility as we think forward um, in the next segment. Uh, what, what does this Jewish community learn from moments like this? When you're forced into a certain type of innovation, are you actually capable of delivering on one of your values in ways that may have been invisible before? I think we learned that in our organization. And, and there's, no, there's kind of no way of walking that back. Once you've actually made possible resources to people who couldn't access them, well, we're not going to put that back in the box. But I I do want to bring Justin into our our conversation because, Justin, in addition to uh, participating in this design process uh, in all sorts of ways, participating in this program, teaching in this program throughout the summer, you were also responsible for a totally new uh, activity at Hartman for a totally new audience. Uh, Justin led the creation of a major teen fellowship. So in addition to our 7,000 rabbis, lay leaders, Jewish communal professionals, we had, I think, 263 uh, teenagers, high school students, who um, I think almost all of them had camp plans until May and suddenly didn't. And working in concert with some of the camps and sometimes directly to teens themselves, we created a learning platform for all of these high school students to come together and do some learning. So first of all, Justin, first just tell us a little bit about the program because it's 
it, it's it's kind of extraordinary to have this many high school students doing this kind of learning together. Um, what did you see and experience for from the kind of state of mind of where these high school kids are in relationship to like, oh, I was supposed to be at camp and now I'm stuck on Zoom with the Hartman Institute. Um, and what did you see that um, that might be useful for us to take beyond this experience um, for folks not just connected to Hartman, but who are interested in teen engagement, um, you know, beyond this summer? Uh, so great. So I think a lot of things came out of this. Uh, and thinking about the teens specifically, I think some things that really surprised us was first was just how independent they are. Um, that these teens really want to be here. They're self-selecting to be here. If they're going to miss a class, they reach out to us. If they want to find out more, they reach out to us. They really are taking this upon themselves. Um, and that this is not a helicopter parenting experience. It's the opposite. And we kind of make that assumption that like parents are behind all this. And I, I think only three parents have like emailed me on behalf of teens. It's much been more teens doing this themselves. The second thing that's come out of this is really the excitement of working with a group that has so much less baggage than some of the adults um, that really come into a situation where they are curious and they want to learn from others. And they also are willing to try on so many different hats over the course of the summer. I remember Rachel saying to me that we should emphasize to them, try on new ways of thinking or new opinions you've never taken uh, before. And, and they really did that this summer. They really have, have been trying that. Um, and then I think the other piece is that um, coming into this moment and actually being very um, thirsty for nuance. Um, and really engaging with people they disagree with and with complexity. We make this assumption sometimes, and Yehuda, we've spoken about this as well, that uh, we need to simplify things for people. Um, and, and what they're hungry for is is an opportunity to approach complex issues in a thoughtful way. And I think um, we're, we're creating a space for that to happen for them. I mean, on, and on the camp piece, uh, it's 100% correct. Many of these people were not, uh, were planning to be in camp this summer and they have deep love for camp this summer. Um, and, and we've really tried to um, bring that forward instead of trying to, to push that aside, um, both with creating space for them to talk about their camp experiences and what they feel like they're missing in small cohorts, um, and also for them to, um, uh, and also for them to have moments that feel a little bit more camp-like, um, whether it's socially connecting or, or more fun experiences outside of the fellowship. So I want to ask, I want to ask all of you to, to first reflect on, you know, our, our organization is going to learn a whole bunch of stuff from this experience. I will say as powerful as it is to watch a group get mobilized across time and space and distance, I still don't think this vision of the future workplace is the ideal vision of a future workplace. I got to tell you, I, um, I can't tell you how many times in the last four months I have had the conversation in my head of like, oh, that was a tough conversation. I'm really looking forward to being back in the office tomorrow so I can actually sit with this person and talk to them directly. And, the, and you know, and the reason why I realized why that was happening was because I was in the mindset of I travel a lot. So I assume that like I'm on a trip and then I'm going to be going back to work and to really get into a place of like, no, no, tomorrow you're also going to wake up, be in your pajamas and be at work all day. I think we're going to, we're going to have to bounce back to some, um, to some of our previous patterns. I don't, I don't anticipate that this is an an essential change. So besides our organization though, I want you to all reflect, like, what do you think the Jewish world learns from a successful educational experiment like this? What, what for other organizations, for other leaders, for folks in philanthropy, we had a really extraordinary experience. We ran an experiment. Lauren, you said, I wasn't sure whether the execution and the tech was going to hold up. And in the end, I don't know, three, four times we had tech problems over the course of the summer. Most of them were me because I had bad Wi-Fi um, for my teaching. Uh, I don't, I, but I'm curious, like, what are the, 
educational uh, lessons? Um, what are the lessons around accessibility? What are the lessons around tech? What are the lessons around creativity that you want the Jewish world to be thinking about that emerged now from a successful experiment? You know, sometimes you could you could learn those things from a failed experiment, but we have some data of a successful one. So, um, so what do you think we learned from now? I would I would say that I was one of the things that I learned was that, you know, despite what our family dinners in the newspaper might lead you to believe about how many topics people are really interested in right now, there is actually a tremendous expansiveness to what people are hungry to learn about. And that I think there was something there's something very refreshing to people about not just having a hot take on something that's on the front page, but to to exploring something that they thought about for a long time or something that's totally new to them. And I mean, this summer we danced through Israeli music, feminist art, the poetry of Nathan Alterman, as well as annexation and COVID. And there's something about the expansiveness that we allow ourselves, when we allow ourselves to learn in this way at a time when it feels like our conversations are so constricted to like one or two things, that this expansiveness, um, it feeds us Jewishly and it feeds us communally, that there's a way that knowing there's so much more to talk about and hearing so many more conversations makes us feel connected and takes us out of a feeling of isolation. And that's something that I felt again and again, and I heard from our participants. So I'll jump in. This is Justice. Um, I guess one quick comment from the balcony, which is to say, I, f I feel like Ours, th the success we had is in part because we're in the field of Jewish education. I think that there's something that allows Jewish education to happen online in a way that other aspects of Jewish life can't as easily be transformed as quickly. So in some ways, I, th I think that we were lucky in that moment. The second thing I would say is that there was a really interesting mix of, on the one hand, to pull another phrase from, from an earlier internet area, co content is king, right? The, the fact that we had great content from so many diverse faculty was really powerful. On the other hand, we learned uh, in our early feedback after the first week from our participants that they want more than just content. They also want interactivity. They want the social connection. They want some of this other side. And so we worked hard to experiment with some of those pieces, but it, it actually wasn't a core major priority of our pre-launch design process to create some of those things. So I think one learning is, um, you know, when you do the education, you really should design from the beginning these other aspects. And I think that's something we could have done, spent more time on. I was just going to add to that. Um, in addition to content being at the core of what we do, I think in the end, a lot of the success of the program was about bringing our faculty in this paradoxically intimate way to so many people. And we spent a lot of time working with our faculty in advance to think about best strategies for online pedagogy and even the, the different tools that Zoom affords us for creating interactive learning. And all of that, I think, was great and helpful. But in the end, I think there was something about the informal nature of our faculty teaching from their homes on a Zoom screen that, that helped our participants feel like they were really invited in to our faculty members' lives and their thoughts and their hearts and their minds and that it was not an academic experience. I got so much feedback from, from participants about how much they appreciated um, just feeling that connection and that access to faculty. And I think that was surprising. I'm not sure that we 
thought that would happen. I think we talked a lot about the constraints of Zoom and the fear of Zoom fatigue and the fear that it would feel impersonal. And, and ironically, I think it had the opposite effect. And I was just in a focus group with rabbis that were giving feedback about the experience. And one rabbi said, you know, when I'm in the Beit Midrash in Jerusalem, I'm usually staring at the back of someone's head. And now when I was in a, a Beit Midrash, or even though it was a webinar, I felt so close to the faculty person because I could see that face-to-face. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's so interesting because, you know, one of our, in one of our examples, I think it was Micha Goodman for his Beit Midrash Shior, I think it was 1,100 people were signed up or 1,000 people were signed up for that Shior, and 90% of the people stayed on for the entire time. And Micha is not using, like, Zoom tricks. He's just giving a really strong, compelling frontal presentation. But sometimes the strength of a presentation and the, the work that it makes you do as a listener... Right? If you're the type of person who can sit through a 45-minute to an hour-long lecture and, and you have a really good representation of it, ain't patentum is this. There's no shortcuts. It's not, gonna like, it's not necessarily better to have like good, tricky pedagogic strategies. Sometimes that, the content can lead us. After four weeks, our summer program altogether now has come to a close, but that doesn't mean the learning is over. Videos of hundreds of sessions from our scholars are now available free online at summer.hartman.org.il. And on Thursday, July 30th, Yehuda Kurtzer will be teaching about the fast of Tisha B'Av. You can watch that live on the Shalom Hartman Facebook page, and details will be available on the website beginning on Tuesday, July 28th. I want to ask a slightly different question. And Justin, I guess I'm, I'm curious your take on this because you've also been doing some work around uh, Israel education in, in day schools. One of the big questions around um, in the field of Israel education is what, what do we do when the best technology that's been available for Israel education is not available to us for minimum 24 to 36 months? When, when we're really going to see a real, a massive resumption of the travel to Israel. And for Hartman, we're in that game too, right? Because when we bring our rabbis to Israel for the summer, a piece of it is being in Israel for the summer and sitting in the courtyard and hearing an Israeli concert. For us, it's a little bit easier in that our whole work is about content and that can be delivered in all sorts of ways, but certainly the experiential side. So I'm just curious, Justin, whether, I don't know, I, I, I guess I'm wondering like when you're doing this work around Israel engagement, what insights do you have about, about the relationship between content and experience going forward for this field? And what, what might we do in terms of some practices over the next couple of years uh, in, in this field that just doesn't have that shortcut technology available to it? So I think you're, you're hitting on a point, which is, uh, you know, as you put it, the shortcut of the Israel educational experience that comes with being there in person. Um, it's actually funny. We actually have one of our cohorts is a Ramah seminar group. These are all teens that were meant to do Ramah seminar in Israel this summer, and they're spending it with us and they're meeting and processing this experience. We're almost getting like a test case for what it's like to do this instead of going to Israel together. And I think uh, there's certainly the piece around actually backing up and thinking about what are our goals around Israel education and the North American relationship um, with Israel, um, which I think it, it, um, we should be backing up and thinking about how do we do that educationally, whether it's in the classroom 
term or where they're in the camp space or going to Israel itself, um, which I think is a big piece of what we do. Um, I'll say the second thing that I would add is there's a, a big element of the Israel experience is not only what happens on the ground in Israel, but also just the, the shared cohort experience of going to Israel together. Like I remember I led a birthright trip many years ago and we're still like a Facebook group that chats together. Like that's, that's for life when you do that together. And so I think that that actually both around Israel education and our educational learning in general this summer is thinking about how we make these experiences, not a, you watch and go home, but something that you're sharing with others. And so whether it's the rabbis who are, who are coming together to do ATN or whether it's um, teens from a specific place or even teens who didn't know each other before, but are now sharing an experience together around Israel education in some way, you're still getting that piece of we did something deep together. We went through it together and experienced it. And, and it, it, I think it really enriches the some element of the experiential aspect of the Israel trip. Yeah, and I, I wonder, through, I've wondered throughout the summer, to what extent are our participants feeling a sense of intimacy, either with the faculty, Lauren, you alluded to that before, people felt that they were actually talking to or being talked to directly. I wonder about the question of relationship with one another. Do these activities build a sense of shared peoplehood, or do people see themselves as accessing it? Any, uh, any thoughts on that? I'll jump in there and say, so that's something that became very clear as early on, even in our application process. Um, that teens were were hungry for content, but they wanted to connect with teens. Like they, we had people saying, "I'm an introvert," and uh, I always thought of myself that way. But now that COVID happened, I need a space to meet other people. It's not something that has come easily. We didn't have a quick fix to it because we realized that presenting content for people to grapple with um, is super powerful. But how do you also create the community? Um, and some of it came from them. They've really created their own community around how they respond and, and participate in the chat. And also some of them have developed opportunities to connect outside of their cohort experience where they're sending each other snail mail and doing pen pal work and setting up baking at night and things like that. A big piece of it, though, is making sure there's time to process what you're learning outside of the session with a group of people that either are new to you or you have the common experience with. Um, so that's a big piece. And then we've also we've tried to create other spaces for them to connect beyond our programming. So like an open space moment where they can talk about what they want to talk about. Um, affinity groups um, for uh, Jews of color or LGBTQ plus who identify that way um, or um, uh, simple uh, nights of like a baking night or a movie night or an ice cream night where um, we're letting the participants in the program really lead the charge. But we're creating space for them to connect because we feel like. The two go together is when we're really hitting a home run. If they have the content to grapple with, but they also have a space to really connect. But it's, I think that's the hardest part is that second piece. Yeah, Rachel, you seemed a little skeptical around uh, the, the it, it, just in your, <laughs> about whether these, whether these activities can actually build a sense of collectivity or community. Yeah, I mean, I, I do, I do wonder. I, I, like, I, I am a little skeptical. There's something, you know, so different about, uh, you know, climbing Mitzada together, or I, I, you know, going through some kind of experience in Israel with Hebrew, or that, you know, as opposed to doing these kinds of online things. And at the same time, you know, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I think that like the, the, the ability to create this kind of deep learning at this time, we don't know how this is going to impact people in the long run, and what the stickiness of it will be. Summer, summer 2020 is its own thing. And I don't think we know absent most experiences we're used to, what the impact of this experience will be. And, and I think the jury is out about how that will play for, for these young people. 
I think one of the interesting phenomena that we saw this summer in our program, we saw a microcosm of, but I also think could be a, a, a larger learning for the field, is a recalibration of the relationship between national institutions and local institutions. And the way we saw it here was, you know, Justin described relationships that we built with different camps. So they were looking to us basically as a service provider, as a national organization. But like Ramah Seminar, their primary goal is to build a community of just the Ramah kids. It's okay if they're part of a larger network, but they really are. They really care about that group. Or we had a whole bunch of congregations, um, the largest one of which was Temple Emmanuel in Newton, which brought, I think, 300 people um, to all together now this summer. Um, and we created some special offerings for them and a few other congregations like that. And even, even congregations that weren't in touch with us about this, I know in New York and in Detroit and other places, where they just said, why would we try to compete with this national offerings? Why don't we curate um, Hartman offerings for our congregations? And the, the, the inverse is the really interesting question, which is what are the things that a national organization like Hartman could never actually provide for people? And you know, so certainly for rabbis and synagogues, it's the pastoral care. <laughs> Like we might be the place on a national level that is making high level Torah study accessible to everybody in the American Jewish community, but we're not going to ultimately be in your community holding your hand when you're sick. So I, I don't know. I, I'm wondering whether, and, and Lauren, you may have some insights on this from hearing from rabbis who, who probably themselves were studying at Hartman this summer and for the first time had congregants who were studying at Hartman this summer of whether there's some, some different calibration that you think might happen around partnership and around the national and the local. Yeah, I think we started to see that already years ago when rabbis would come to Jerusalem in the summer and learn with us and want to figure out how they could bring back that experience to their communities. Um, part of it was just what they learned and the way they translated that in their sermons and in their own teaching. But early on, we learned that it would be helpful for us to create curricular resources and tools for rabbis to, in a sense, bring Hartman faculty into uh, the walls of their synagogues. And those became our video lecture series courses, our iEngage project. And I think this summer kind of took that effort to a new level in the sense that rabbis were able to actually study in the same program with their congregants to be able to create kind of breakout discussion groups based on all together watching um, Shirim and, and taking electives together. Something else I wanted to say that's maybe not directly related to your question was about um, in response to Rachel and the way in which uh, community can be built on in a larger program like this. And I think it's related to creating spaces for leaders to collaborate and to think together and to plan together. And I think we saw that, uh, as Justin mentioned in the teen program, um, sometimes self-initiated by the teens, but we from our program design process from the outset created different program modules within Altogether Now that would allow, for example, rabbis to offer peer workshops on topics that felt practically relevant and important for rabbis to share best practices, to brainstorm together, especially on areas of synagogue programming, high holidays, uh, rabbis pursuing racial justice, things that are really areas of struggle for rabbis right now where they could come into a room with colleagues and in a safe space, share their concerns, think through problems together. And I think that that is something that can happen on Zoom. I share, Rachel, some of your skepticism about kind of the, the intensity of community building and cohort work that you can do with leaders when you're not together in person and when you're not taking people away in a retreat 
kind of setting, but we definitely saw it working in small ways through Zoom meetings in, in these breakout sessions. Yeah, I mean, it's a good argument in, the, in this whole field of Jewish education and educational technology to, again, not homogenize activities and outcomes. You know, ultimately, altogether now looks like one conference, but it was actually like 70 different modes. So it's because it's a totally different thing when it's like eight, peop- eight rabbis and one teacher. And I had, I had some programs like this, not quite eight, but maybe 25, 26. And we were actually really in a conversation, which is very different than having 275 people in a baby drash and you're like talking to yourself on a screen. Um, and, and, and yet there was a, there a piece of value for A and a piece of value for B. So I would love to see a way in which when, when the Jewish community kind of confronts what did we learn from this moment where we can actually make sure that we segment out all of these different modes as diff- serving different people in our population differently and also coming up with different kind of conclusions. Let me ask one last question for all of you. I'd love to hear from each of you on this, which is you got to sit in a lot of these sessions. Uh, some of you all taught at some point along the way in these sessions. So you're, um, you're welcome to, to say something you said, but uh, one piece of Torah that stuck with you, something you learned this summer that you can't shake uh, we all have that experience with Torah study. Um, something you said, something you heard um, for our listeners, um, many of whom I'm sure participated in all together now, but perhaps we're not in all the sessions that you were uh, to get a sense of the emotional resonance, resonance of this program. So for me, uh, it was um, Malila Helmer class earlier this week where she talked about the word mashber, the word crisis in Hebrew, and she traced its etymology and its meanings through uh, the Bible and through the, through the Talmud and through the Zohar and through modern Hebrew poetry. And she told this one story about uh, Rabbi Akiva being in a boat on the water and his boat falling apart um, and it's sort of, you know, it being a crisis and how he held onto a plank. And as each wave went by, he nodded at the wave. And for me, that's an image of like, yeah, this feels like a crisis now, but the way you get through it is you nod at each wave. Like you take it one wave at a time. Um, and that image is so profound for me. I'll, I'll never forget it. Rachel, I had the same, uh, the same tour I was going to share, share about, um, you know, Mashbear as a birthing stool that out of crisis, we can often find breakthroughs. And that was very powerful for me. But I'm also thinking about Daniel's opening Beit Midrash and this image, this metaphor of a pivot foot. And the way in which in times of crisis and uncertainty, it's helpful to think about your moral core. And even though we may be making all kinds of pivots, when we can get in touch with at our core, what are our values that will guide us? And even if we're going to need to uh, exercise those values in new ways um, to just commit and to identify and to embrace those foundational values that define us and then to keep pivoting. For me, uh, it was embodied Torah and the chance to partner with Gina Green on a series about blackness and Jewishness in this moment. And I think that those four sessions that we worked on together will forever be part of my memory of the summer of 2020, especially because I met and, and because we got to meet together and bring to so many other people the most compelling Jewish voices of color uh, that we need to hear in this moment. And I just can't, I just can't get their faces and their teachings out of my heart and mind in this moment. And I feel really, uh, I feel really lucky to have uh, been able to hear them in this moment when we're all just kind of really reaching out to have some of these conversations. 
One of the learning that really stands out for me was uh, when one of the teens in our program asked uh, Daniel about the question of the accusation of dual loyalty um, to American Jews. Um, and it, it's clear that a lot of the teens in the program are really navigating um, walking in progressive circles where there are certain accusations that they feel like they're being facing because they're in some way supportive of Israel or pro-Israel along those lines. Um, and Daniel's response, which was basically that, Yes, there is dual loyalty. Actually, if you look around, everyone you know has at least two loyalties. Most people have many, many loyalties. Um, we have an idea of like a federal and state governments. You have family and friends. Everyone has many loyalties. But saying that Jews have dual loyalties, that's bad, is strictly anti-Semitic. Um, and I think aside from the response itself, just seeing the way it, it was so liberating to hear it for so many teens in the room and the responses in the chat, you just like felt there was a moment here where someone was kind of shifting the way they thought about a big issue that's really present in their lives. You know, I'll just share, um, I, given the teaching that I was doing this summer, I think it was 28 sessions. I didn't have a huge amount of opportunity to be in other sessions, <laughs> but there were a couple of things that I just noticed in, in interlocutors um, and is, in particular in the chat was the degree of passion that was being brought by the questions which if you ever think that teaching an online webinar is the business of edutainment, you would not see that in the fury and anger and per and like really personal, um, really personal stuff. Uh, and seeing, hearing from rabbis who felt, you know, we mentioned, we alluded to, to disability before from rabbis who said, thank you for being here. I've been waiting for you to be here because I couldn't come to you and you better not leave. <laughs> You're in my living room now. Um, or just the, the fury or rage that participants were, in a nice way, directing towards each other in the chat. I just love that um, because it basically said, it's not us as an organization stretching out to be with you. It's you as the people stretching out to be with us and with each other. And, um, and there's no work of Torah that doesn't have that degree of stretching and passion. And, and if we can take something from it, it's, look, we, we're... The, the, you know, the great thing about the title of our summer is the, all to, the, the last thing we are is all together right now. So um, if we're going to if we're going to con constitute uh, and construct a community uh, across learning, it's going to require all of us stretching out to do it. So I want to thank you all, my uh, my beloved colleagues, my friends, uh, Lauren Burke and Justice Baird, Justin Pines and Rachel Jacoby Rosenfield, my guests for this week on Identity Crisis. Thank you for being here. And thanks to all of you for listening to this show. I should say all of the little bits of Torah that were shared at the end are available online uh, at the Hartman Summer website and will be uh, probably until about the high holidays, haven't quite sorted it out yet, but it's all there and there's a tremendous amount of content um, that's available for you to find there. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Harman Institute. It was produced and edited this week by David C. Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music provided by So Called. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We really would love to know what you think about the show. You can write to us at identitycrisis.shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Thanks for listening.